it's a bit of a stretch, but I'll try to segue it anyway. Into BTC. So the reason I want to talk about this is now that the price of BTC just has skyrocketed so much, there's so many people that I've known from various different parts of life who are like on the bandwagon. Hey, BTC is awesome. And they'll ask me occasionally, like if they see me making jokes about confirmation times or talking about SV or whatever, which I don't do a ton on Twitter. I'm not like out there evangelizing or anything. I actually try to avoid those (laughs) most of the time trying to convince people, but they'll ask me questions or they'll be like, well, you know, it just, it just makes sense because it's, it's digital gold. And they'll just kind of repeat tropes like, well, it's the most censorship resistant. So it's the best, uh, clearly. Um, and I thought, you know, this is old stuff for us, right? Like we, we laugh about BTC's narrative and, and we think that there are obvious reasons that things are silly, but these things came about in a, in a context and they, and they exist for a reason. And I think, I think it's a good, uh, a good time to break them down. And I want to, I want to give the best possible, I want to steel man the BTC arguments, not, not the celebrity people out there who honestly don't know absolutely anything about BTC, but the people who are actually making the arguments who are kind of setting the narrative of, you know, why you need to have really small blocks and all that stuff. And I want to kind of get into that and talk about how those arguments emerged. Uh, those were not always there and uh, why they ended up winning and what, where they're right, if they are, and where they're wrong. You guys game? Yeah, let's do it. Okay. So, okay. Let's see. Let, okay. Let, let's start with, and I'll, I'll kind of try to ask questions of you guys and let you, cause you, cause you have, I think both of you have a better, more in-depth knowledge of both the arguments themselves, the technical, the reasons technically why they're wrong and sort of the, the genesis and the history of these things. So when, when BTC was just, when Bitcoin was just one thing, Bitcoin, when did there start to be a divergence in different visions for what it meant for Bitcoin to succeed? Or maybe it's a better way to ask. Originally, when Bitcoin sort of first emerged beyond, let's say, the Satoshi team and a few people on a mailing list, what was the like dominant narrative for what Bitcoin succeeding meant? What would it mean to people back then to say Bitcoin has succeeded? Yeah, I think it depends on when you're looking. So the small block philosophy was there pretty much since the beginning. <clears throat> so in the early forum posts and um, early discussions that people were having, there, you could see that there was small blockerism from the beginning. I would say that was the extreme minority, though. Once it got past that group, maybe 2011, 2010, 2011, something like that, um, it seemed like the, the narrative we were working in is that Bitcoin's success was going to come through mainstream adoption, meaning usage in commerce. So you were going to recruit the big companies and show them the benefits of using Bitcoin as a medium of exchange because it can actually be cheaper for them. And you were going to have uh, the system scale naturally. As it got bigger, you were going to get bigger blocks. As there was more commerce, you'd sort of have a larger decentralization of the network and the, the network would become more robust. Um, and I think that started to fall off the rails, maybe 2015 or so is, is probably the beginning where there were, there were real discussions being had that, Hey, maybe we shouldn't increase the block size at all. Um, what do you think that sounds about right, Derek? Well, I think, I think the propaganda, I think they're just the, the serious discussions 
where it was like, let's never raise it. We're probably around that time, but the propaganda began in like 2013. Yeah. That was when Peter Todd's video came out. It was like March, 2013. And that was probably the first major thing. I mean, there were other things, but like Peter Todd was definitely one of the loudest voices who, and he was, he was adamantly against raising the block size at all. Right. Um, and that was, uh, but he would, but he was in the minority, an extreme minority. So like right. even, even Greg Maxwell was telling him publicly that we, 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 while we don't, we don't want the blocks to grow too big. We definitely don't want to limit it just to one megabyte. Right. So even and, Greg Maxwell was saying that at the time. And the, the more reserved, I remember when the discussions were happening, it was maybe 2013 or 2014. Um, the, 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 the spectrum was between like big blockers who wanted to go up to like 32 megs. There were some really big blockers like Gavin that said, we probably don't even need this block size limit at all. And I think my current might've said that at one point. Um, and then the, the small blockers were like, okay, let's do eight megabytes or we'll get to eight megabytes by going two and then we'll go four and then we'll go eight in a matter of years. We'll have essentially an eightfold increase of the transaction throughput of the network. And I think, Ad, I think that was an agreement that like Adam Back signed on to as well. So even then, and that was 20, you know, maybe I want to say 2014. I think that it really got started to get hardcore propagandistic and went off the rails at um, around 2015 and then through to the Segwit2x thing in 2017. Um, that's where, that's about that time where there was a total switch from digital cash to this is just digital gold. You can't have any hard forks whatsoever. And it looks like we're going to be at one to two megabytes um, forever now, the, where, the, where the purpose of the tech sort of changed from cash to uh, store value. So, so the, you know, the, the original intent um, by, you know, sort of Satoshi and, and even most of the early people was, hey, you have this thing, the fees are always really low. And you can send it and you can also do things like zero confirmation transactions that are instant as long as it's not a really, really, you know, valuable thing that you want to wait to have multiple, you know, confirmations for. That was always the plan. And it was like, yeah. hey, let's put a limit on the block size. And, and not even everybody totally agreed when they first put it in, but it was like, okay, fine. It won't hurt anything early on. Let's limit it to one megabyte because we might get a bunch of people early on spamming it, attacking it because it was cheap to do it at the time. And it was something that they were worried about. The network couldn't handle it, but it was kind of implied that, and then we'll just lift it as we go. And there was discussion among some people and tell me if I'm characterizing this right, that, well, at some point the blocks might be really big and then nobody will be able to run a node. And people are like, yeah, but Moore's law of computing, it will keep getting better. And we can kind of like punt that, like maybe, maybe it will be a problem. Satoshi didn't seem to think so, but if it is a problem, we can kind of punt it down the road. And we're certainly very far away from that being a problem. We can certainly go up to four, eight, and we kind of will as we need to. That was sort of the general discussion, right? I think that's largely correct though not at the very beginning. So I don't think there was much discussion about the block size limit publicly before Satoshi implemented it. From my understanding, it was like, it sounded like Satoshi and Hal Finney were having some private conversations and then Satoshi just added it. And the idea is, yeah, yeah, we'll just, we'll just bump it up later, but there's going to be in this short window. That would have been, I don't know, was that, I think it was maybe 2010, maybe yeah, early 20, 2011. 2011, so, I think maybe. Yeah. 20, it, it was still very early on. Early. I think the, the idea was like, of course, we're not going to discuss this. This is obviously not a permanent throughput limit, but this is just something we're going to do now. We'll fix it later. And then later there was more discussion that started being had about specifically that one megabyte limit. 
I, and that's part of the reason I think it was so sinister and, and, and an oversight on Satoshi's part because he hard-coded it in there. And I think it's so obvious that uh, so, that was so that not it would meant require, to- So it would require a hard fork to- Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And, and it's one of those things where you're adding a systemic problem here, especially if somebody wants to break Bitcoin, when it's crystal clear that this limit is supposed to be changed, that you can, that it's like, of course, these people in the future are going to change it because it's so obvious. Oops, that's an oversight because now you, now if somebody wants to break it, they can leverage that one obvious thing um, and start to control the network because of it. So the, when the debate started to emerge around how there's sort of two separate debates, how fast to raise the block size uh, and whether to raise it at all. So early on, it was pretty much everybody was like, yeah, you've got to raise it, but maybe we got to raise it slowly versus some people that said, let's just do it all the way, remove it and let miners do whatever they want. And Derek, are you saying Peter Todd, was he actually arguing never raise it, period? Was he the first one to make that argument? I think he's probably the first one to make that argument. And what, uh, was, and what was his... Steel man, his argument. What was his claim for why that would be beneficial, and how did how did everybody else? Got to watch the propaganda video. Well, you, uh, you I, watch, I've seen it, but I don't uh, remember the, the video. Is pretty incredible, you know, because it's like it, I mean, it really is. It's propaganda, you know, and they obviously paid a lot of money for it. Um, and it's it's essentially all these bad things are going to happen if we if we don't raise the block if we raise the block size, we're going to ruin Bitcoin's security model by making it um, so that. Uh, uh, we centralize the operation of nodes. You know, it's, it's, it's kind of the standard argument, but just taken to its extreme. Mm -hmm. He wasn't arguing, interestingly, because like the argument later became like, oh, we can't do it because it's too controversial. Like right. that became like a, but like in the beginning, it was just like, you know, he wouldn't have dared to say that because everyone was, you know, in favor of it. It was, it was rather, you know, we can't do it because we're going to basically, you know, make a coin that is easily controlled by, you know, the state and other things. Yeah, right. Keep the block size limit at one megabyte because otherwise the coin will be controlled. Well, yeah, no. it is interesting how the, the burden of proof totally flipped to where it's like, look, you know, even core developers will say this sometimes, look, I might want a higher block limit, but the right. community has chosen. You have to go with what the community has chosen, which is not an argument, right? That's not an argument no. for having small blocks. It's like a claim about, well, whatever this governance structure is, whatever they choose is right and correct. And there's yeah, all kinds of it, problems. It's a tactic. And, and what they meant by the community is in practice, they're controlled forums. <laughs> it's like if, if they decided at the time that the community says to increase the block size limit, they would have raised the block size limit. If they, if they decided that the community decided to keep it, then they would keep it. It had nothing to do with the actual organic people on the ground whatsoever. Okay, so when- No, no and, and like, if you, if you go look like, they started to define consensus in a very narrow way. So like the famous <laughs> post that Famos made, yeah. like explaining why they're not gonna allow Bitcoin XT posts on our Bitcoin was because there's no consensus, right? Uh -huh. That's what he says. And so it says, the answer to the question, the FAQ that he wrote, which is how do you know that there is no consensus? He, he writes, I know there is no consensus because Bitcoin core developers, Vladimir, Greg, and Peter are opposed to Bitcoin XT. Bingo. That is enough to block consensus. Because it's not literally a hundred percent consensus, because like democracy and stuff, right? Yeah, that, so, that's, that's literally all. That's, that's literally what he said, and so, and so, yeah, it's just crazy. 
Okay. So let, let's walk through the mechanics of, before we even get to the question of fees, because I'm, I'm curious. Well, okay. Let's start with the question of fees. When Peter Todd made this argument and, and anybody else early on that started to, and I know it wasn't very popular at the time, but you know, even if you buy the, <clears throat> Hey, this will, this will keep it more decentralized or whatever. Did people say, yeah, but the fees will be so high, you won't be able to use it. And the confirmation times will get really slow. And what was the discussion around that? Did anybody at that time say, oh, that's fine. You don't need to be able to send it and use it. You just got to hold on to it. I don't know if people said the latter that it wouldn't. I, I think the store of value thing came later, uh, significantly later. Um, the line that a lot of big blockers were using, which I seemed plausible, is that you were going to essentially have network failure. And what they meant by network failure is like transactions going through, don't go through, the, the price of the transaction goes through the roof, which did happen. But I think a lot of big blockers were predicting, and that would be the end of Bitcoin because it would be self-evident that, oops, the system has just catastrophically failed. It's not reliable. But that's not what we saw. We did see the, the it, 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 you had network failure, and yet um, that was sort of, uh, spun into, well, this is going to be part of the expectation. Like we're going into a store of value only system where central bankers are going to be the people using the blockchain and everybody else will use a second network. Yeah. It's interesting. You, you had network failure, which resulted in de-adoption, like businesses who had previously accepted it saying we can't anymore. Um, and then it resulted in pretty much all the altcoins we see today. Now, not that mm -hmm. none of those would have existed, but all of these sprung out and much of the impetus was oh, Bitcoin has a scaling problem. So I'm going to go create some new thing that can scale. Or Bitcoin is limited. It can't put data on chain because it can barely do transactions. I'm going to go do... And so you, you, Bitcoin didn't die, but all these other things emerged and adoption of Bitcoin died, which I, I think today, small blockers would say, yeah, so what? That's all yeah. that matters is the value of Bitcoin keeps going up and pe people keep trusting it as a place to, to put their money instead of, you know, US dollars. Yeah. And, and this is, you know, if there's any criticism of the, of the historical big block position, it's that we said after network failure is uh, there's no recovery or like you've gone off a cliff, you've crashed and that's the end of the story. And that's just not what happened. They went off the, the cliff, they crashed and it kept going on because the narrative was very strong. And I don't, I don't know... A I can't think off the top of my head, a single big blocker that didn't make like catastrophic pr predictions or thought to themselves, yeah, I guess it could crash and then keep going on. I certainly wouldn't have thought that. So, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, I, uh, I don't think I've seen anything. There definitely were more catastrophic predictions, but there were like- Keep, keep talking, Hearn, by the way. I just got to step out for one second, but keep going. Mike Hearn said things like, um, you know, longer term predictions too. And in, in that even if it does succeed, like you're building a, a, a something that can actually be more easily manipulated and controlled, you know? Yeah. But he even left the project. So I feel like that well, he I, left I, the project, I think, because he thought that it was no longer anything that he wanted to be interested in, you know, right. because like, and he was always saying that he's like, I'm not excited about building a coin that nobody can use. He's like, I, I didn't get signed. I didn't sign up for Bitcoin. I, 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 I guess Maybe I'm reading into it because I, when I read those words, I, and I hear, you know, I'm not excited building a coin that, you know, nobody can use. I sort of interpret that as the system isn't going to work. 
And maybe, yeah. maybe that's my own mistake. Maybe I'm, I'm putting that there because that's sort of my beliefs as well. In well, the it's, it's possible. I mean, I, I definitely think the big blockers overstated the degree to which or overbelieved that. I mean, I certainly did. Uh, you know, I wasn't sure that Bitcoin would recover after 2017, for sure. Yeah, right. Um, but um, I think that Hearn was also making longer term predictions that like, even now, like could still come true. Mm-hmm. Like it's, it's still possible that Bitcoin doesn't succeed even if it stays around it's still possible that bitcoin doesn't succeed at almost any of its original goals well and there's Um, there's a question of your definition of success too right like in some ways you could say um bitcoin has already failed not at increasing in price but at posing at replacing the status quo of money in any kind of way at posing any kind of threat to the current system um or at being decentralized, for example, if a group of you know developers has has sufficient control, it depends on your your definition of failure, I suppose. Well, a lot of the a lot of the predictions big blockers did make were absolutely true too. Like the prediction that companies would be one actually too. By the way, like it, it wasn't the case in the very beginning necessarily that um, that people were arguing that um, that high fees were this amazing thing. In fact, like. Sometimes there were arguments that were basically like, oh, well, we don't know what the fees are. Like you guys are being like, like they were basically telling when, when Mike and Gavin were saying like, fees are going to like really soon, we're going to be at a point where we have these big backlogs and fees are going to be unsustainable for people. And we're going to see de-adoption, which the de-adoption did happen. Uh, people were basically saying, you guys are fear mongering. Like mm-hmm. we're not going to hit that point that fast. That's what, oh. and they were like, no, we are like, we're, we're about to hit it. You guys, And they're like, no, no, no. No, we're not going to hit that. Or other people were saying things like there was this one interesting debate with, with Gavin where the guy was basically saying, oh, yeah, well, once we, once it happens, like it'll w- then then we'll know like how far how, how high fees can go and yeah. nothing bad will actually happen. It'll actually the fees will just drop back down. And that's not really what happened. What I, what ended up happening instead was that a lot of people just stopped using Bitcoin or went to other projects. Business models failed. And uh, a lot of damage was done. And if you look like Bitcoin's trans- actual transaction volume hasn't grown that much in years. Right. right. Well, because like, uh, the, the arguments, the way that they shift. So it was like fees will not get that high. And then it was like high fees are a feature, not a bug. They're really great. And that shift, you know, it's, it's possible that somebody's people's minds just changed. But it's like if you wanted to describe all the arguments made, through a lens of somebody wants to make sure that you can't use Bitcoin directly so that you have to use a second layer, all the arguments that they made and the way that they shifted, that's exactly what you would do. You would, you would try this argument until it was no longer tenable. Then you'd change the narrative to this right. argument. So and can, I, can I read, can I read some of the um, yeah. responses to Peter Todd's video? <clears throat> Cause it's useful to kind of understand what people so, were so, saying. Yeah, so yeah. This yeah. Is the video, the first video, the first time that we know of when somebody's making the full-on case for one megabyte. Yeah, like a formal way. Yeah, I but be- before you do, I just want to say one more thing on fees. Um, they, they also have, uh, they've, they've tried to have their cake and eat it too, because you'll still see when fees are low on BTC, prominent people will still be like, oh, what's the big deal about fees? You can move it yeah. for a dollar. You can move it for 50 cents. So, so when the fees are high, they say it's no big deal. When the fees are low, they go, hey, look, it's this great payment system still. When the, when the fees are high, they pop the champagne and say, this is how you pay the miners, you know? Right. Yeah, no, it's fantastic when the fees are high. 
but yeah, I mean, the time when the, when the video, there are other, by the way, like people were talking about limiting the block size before then, like even Jeff, like Jeff Garzik said in 2010, like Bitcoin may be best as a settlement layer, which is funny because he later changed his mind. So like there were discussions even earlier on like dev IRC chat logs, which uh, curiously enough, the only copies that exist are Greg Maxwell's. But I did go through the process of verifying them with some of the people involved, and they all verified that they, at least the, the, the quotes that I asked about, were correct. So there was definitely some of that, but like the idea that you wouldn't scale at all on chain was, was like nonsense. So, like, even Greg Maxwell, his response is pretty telling. He says, I cringe a little at the oversimplification of this video and worry in a couple of years it will be clear that. 10 megabytes or whatever is totally safe relative to all concerns is like, and then by 2023, there may be plenty of transaction volume to keep up enough fees to support security. And maybe some people will be dogmatically promoting a one megabyte limit because they walked away from the video thinking that one megabyte is a magic number. And uh, he's like, I'd certainly like to see Bitcoin doing far more transactions than that in the future. And he goes on and says like Bitcoin as a practi practical unit for common everyday payments, cheaply available to as many people as possible. Ah, this is Maxwell. What yeah. changed, Greg? Oh, I did. I don't remember that last part. Oh, you got to so, send me so that. So, for link. those who don't know, Greg Maxwell has been like one of the main, both himself and all of the many uh, fake accounts that he seems to control and manipulate. Says, um, it's completely clear to me that transaction costs, even insubstantial ones, have already turned people off from using Bitcoin. So, I mean, this is Greg Maxwell. That's someone incredible. else is great. He's, he's like the leading comment. advocate for small blocks. The, I, I remember that comment, but the first half of it. I don't remember the second half of him talking about use for in, in payments and the fees already being a problem. I remember him saying, well, don't pretend like we're going to be at one megabyte. But the idea that, that he specifically said this is a problem. And then a few years later was celebrating when we had $50 fees. Ooh. Okay, so let's so let's talk about the the arguments for small blocks that Peter Taub is making, and that some people are still making today. That if you have really small blocks, then a lot of people can very easily and cheaply run a node, which means they can download the entire transaction history um, of the blockchain. Uh, even if they're not miners, they're not actually doing the act of adding new transactions and confirming them, but they can download the history and basically view it, can confirm, can verify um, that it is correct and that it is accurate. And if blocks are at one megabyte, pretty much everybody can do that pretty cheaply. If they go up even to two or four or eight, now you're going to not be able to have that and only a very few people will be able to, to do that. And then you're going to have to trust those very few people to tell you that the information's accurate and that there's no double spends or shenanigans or anything. That's the, that's sort of the, my steel man of that argument. What would you guys say to that? It's just factually incorrect. So like with uh, BCH and, and 32 meg blocks, you could on your normal laptop right now, you could run a full node and handle 32 meg blocks, which is, would be a, would have been a 32 fold increase in the block size. Um, so, so even if you're going to stick to the claim that we need to have, so there's several claims. We need a maximum number of people running nodes, um, even if they're not mining, and that that's really important to the network, mm -hmm. which is a claim that's worth examining. Then there's a technical claim. What is the absolute largest block size you could have while still having normal people be able to run nodes? And you're claiming right. that you probably wouldn't lose any of the nodes that are currently running Bitcoin today. You probably wouldn't lose them, technically speaking, unless you exceeded what? 
Well, well, so megabytes. There's a difference in saying what the software can handle and what the hardware can handle. So if there are hardware concerns, yeah, I think you could realistically have 32 meg blocks running on your average laptop without it causing that much of a problem. Um, the software wouldn't be certainly wouldn't be able to handle it now on BTC at least because they've got spaghetti code over there. And from what I hear, like they've, they're not, they're going to have an extremely hard time ever raising the block size limit because of the way they've coded stuff. Um, where does that, who does that impact though? The software component, like. It was so, so it could be, for example, that a 32 meg block in practice would cause problems on the network and on the, on the uh, computers so, running. So if I'm trying to run because, a node. It, it could be too much for my system, but not not because, because it's your system because the software sucks because the software itself is just not right. well optimized. And, and what has BCH changed, or is it BTC that has changed things to make it less optimal? Yeah, it's both. Yeah, they, 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 they both changed it. And if you listen to people talking about um, some of the problems they were having, so for a while, the, the way it was working, and I, I don't, it might still work this way, I'm not 100% sure in BCH. Um, but you would have Bitcoin, you'd have the core devs produce some code update. And then the uh, BCH devs would take that code update and try to finagle it and make it work for BCH. But they ran into various problems like with the unchained transaction limit and other little details that made those updates really hard to do. So for a while, like Amri Sachet, when he's still in BCH, he was saying, and that group was saying they were spending most of their time backporting changes that Bitcoin Core was making into the BCH code. But of course, I say that's a that's a problem. That's actually like a strategic problem. If you're a computer developer and you're basing your new code off of this, this other code base that is built fundamentally differently, like you need a larger change from that. And there are other code bases as well. Like um, I think, I don't know about Bitcoin Unlimited, but the uh, Flowey the Hub guy, uh, Tom Zander, I think his name is, he has built essentially a new code base from scratch that doesn't have a lot of those limitations that were baked into forked versions of the Bitcoin core software. Okay, so, so to boil the, the argument down, if you're really concerned, you really want maximum number of people running nodes, it is completely untrue technically that that requires block sizes of one megabyte. You could completely have it be 32 megabytes or even higher okay. with current technology if you don't have your software screwed up and nodes, just as many nodes or close to just as many nodes, maybe not on a cell phone or whatever, right. would be able to run no problem. So that is like technically completely untrue that it is somehow dangerous to go to two or four or eight or 32. Yeah. Now you, you, you well, the, there are two, there are two arguments that could be made that would, that it would be dangerous. The one is that it requires a hard fork, which is interesting. And then the other one is that, um, is that the sync times themselves? So they've changed the narrative quite a bit in the in, in relatively recently, I think, where like the discussion now being had about nodes is not so much. It's like, oh well, of course you can run a you know on, on a bigger uh, a bit, in bigger blocks. The issue is actually the time it takes to sync for a new node to sync with the blockchain. So when you're syncing with the blockchain, you've got to sync the entire history. Oh, and so, so every first time a node comes online. Right. But even that's yeah. not correct though. Okay. That, 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 yeah, the, that, that's the way that the BTC people do it, but you don't need to do that. Um, yeah. That's unnecessary. So the okay, only so... other argument I can see for making nodes easy or having nodes be easy is, is something like 
using a node, as I understand it, from my experience, has been it, it's better for your own privacy if you're able to use a node. Yeah, I think um, that's fair. You have more control over like the coins and how they're being spent than like mobile wallets today. You can control your IP address, not have you know. So there's there's a lot. I of think that's the main one. I think the controlling the IP address um, is probably the the thing that that you actually would get because if you're if you're not if you're not running your own node, that you're essentially connecting to somebody else's node, which is yeah. Well, the ability to like 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 so like if you're using a mobile wallet today and I'm spending stuff, I'm not able to select like the spend address. So, like the ability uh, to like say, the spend from address, you're saying yeah 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 yeah. So like that's actually useful. For example, like if I if 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 I'm paying on a service and I for whatever reason there are some financial transactions I've made that are tied to one address that I definitely don't want that one service to see or have access to, you know, I would want to be able to control the address from which I'm spending. Whereas right now what's going to happen is it's going to take coins from across the addresses that I have. And you, um, and you can't, if you have a, an SPV wallet, which right. is one that doesn't need to download the full history, that's something that you wouldn't be able to do. Well, I don't know. I mean, I think you, you can, can't, I, you can't I think do that on current, like I couldn't do that on the Bitcoin.com wallet right now. Right, I, right. I think that's wallet specific though. I'm pretty sure that's not I think that's probably because there's almost no demand for that at all. Right. But the argument that you don't want to take away the ability to do that because that right. gives additional privacy, I think is an interesting argument. And, yeah, yeah. And the, if, the privacy if you literally one... couldn't do that in a big block world, then that might then that's an interesting argument for somebody to say that's really important for the few people that want to do it. But yeah. the IP address thing is, you know, I think is important too. Like, you know, the ability to you have a little bit more control over not leaking your information to centralized services when you're using Bitcoin is, I think, useful. Yes, though, um, there's a difference between SPV in theory and SPV as it's been implemented. Yep. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. It, so the way that a lot of wallets have worked, not all of them, but a lot of them is, is essentially SPV is like you're connecting to somebody else's node. It, but that doesn't have to be that way. That's not yeah. true SPV, as, as they they call it. So it might be that with true SPV wallets, you do get IP address ma masking. I'm not 100% sure of that, but that could be the case. So for the people that really want to be able to do the IP, you know, your own IP, um, if you had, let's say, 32 megabyte blocks, would that be not, and they want to run their own node and do that because they want to be able to do the IP thing, would they not be able to do that? 32 meg, they could. Now that's assuming that you can get a regular American, you know, 50 megabit per second internet connection, something like that. It's not, if you're talking about, you know, consistent 32 meg blocks, then that could be, you know, you're going to, that's going to take some bandwidth for sure at that level, but you can go less than that. And I think part, part of what happens here is people will go, oh, we can't raise the block size limit uh, at all because we can't have get multiple gigabyte blocks. So why even walk down that path, you know, kicks the can down the road. I think that's a huge strategic blunder, especially when it happened like in 2017, because you could have kept the entire network together by having reasonable increases to the block size limit. A tenfold or 20-fold or 30-fold increase to transaction throughput is going to buy you a hell of a lot more time well, to de develop second layers. And, than, and just sticking yeah. to the sticking to the the argument about um you know, being able to set your IP or, or being a, having a hard time running your own node if you're in a place with low bandwidth. There's also uh, another problem if you're in a place with low bandwidth. If you're in a place with low bandwidth, the odds are very, very high that you are also operating with small amounts of money. 
So if you keep the blocks really, really small so that somebody in a place with very low bandwidth is able to run a full node, but sending a transaction costs $5, that person's probably not going to use Bitcoin because of the transaction cost as well. So like there's, yeah. there's, you know what I mean? That, that cuts both ways if you're trying yeah. to optimize for that person. Yeah, I right. still think this is one of the best arguments against big, uh, small blocks that like literally no one has ever been able to answer me. And I've asked like all the major thought leaders in BTC, it's like never a good response, which is basically just that if you're talking about like, like nodes are only goods if they're actually, you know, insofar as they're economically relevant nodes, because if a node, if, if, if it just meant something to run a node in and of itself, then obviously for security, obviously what you would do is just run a crap ton of nodes on AWS and you would have more security, right? And that's cheap to do. The reality is like what, they, what they're wanting is, is individual people operating nodes and running their transactions through those nodes, like transacting with those nodes. Well, I mean, people who can't afford to transact on chain are not gonna run a node. Or even if they run a node, it's not gonna be a useful node. And so nobody can answer that question. Like, like you, you're basically causing the same thing. Like well, yeah, it's almost like for Bitcoin to reach mass adoption, you're never going to have that when everyone's running their own node. Why would they, right? Like they're, no one, they're not going to want to. But if, so if you want to create a world where they can run their own node, if, you, if the blocks get too big, well, that's going to keep them from doing it. And if the fees get too high, that's going to keep them from doing it because they're not going to yep. transact with it. So like you can't really have Bitcoin at scale with millions and millions of nodes. So that brings me to the next question. So we sort of answered the first question that no one will be able to run a node. Well, that's untrue at one megabyte is ridiculously low. Even if you went up to 32, you can probably all the current nodes on the network would probably be okay um, or close to it. The second question, how many nodes do you need? And what is the difference between a non-mining node and a, uh, a mining node? So this idea that it's really, really important to maximize the number of people running a full node um, is that true? Is that accurate? Does that, does that bring added security and protection from bad actors or governments to Bitcoin and to what extent? It could. Um, we just got to talk about the, the, the numbers actually matter here. So in terms of the original design, it is as Satoshi was explicit in saying that he expected miners determined to turn into big server farms. That's her, his terminology. There's another, another one I just came across the other day where um, he, he said something essentially like, actually, uh, the more I look at it, it looks like um, I don't, we don't need quite as many nodes as I originally thought. If it's just a few, you know, uh, miners, it's not that big a deal. Right, so, so the that, original intent was clearly, yeah, you don't need tons of nodes. Um, well, yeah. Well, and, but, and, but, and, but, the, you, but the small blockers would say, yeah, Satoshi was wrong about that. Um, you do need tons of nodes. And I'm curious whether, whether or not it's what Satoshi envisioned, is it, is it a valid argument? Yeah, well, I think it's important to, to distinguish between those two things because most people, you know, this is a video for most people, then most people don't realize the way that this system was designed is such that it scales with arbitrarily large blocks that the miners are the ones that are handling. And the beautiful scaling technology that was built into Bitcoin is the fact that regular users don't have to run their own node. Like that is the beauty of it. SPV, that's the whole gorgeous scalability of Bitcoin is precisely the opposite of what the small blockers um, claim. Now there could be, there, there could be an argument. I think the best argument for having um, 
the miners uh, not the main participants of the network or not having like these super miners that are these huge businesses or something is geographic centralization because that introduces a political risk. So like if you have the entire network relying on huge miners being central players and all of those miners are located in China, then I could see that as a legitimate political risk if the government got involved and said, okay, well, we're going to change the software now, we're going to you know, regulate it in some way, then you could have, that, could, that could cause problems. So I've always wondered why, and I don't think I've heard a small blocker address this, but you want, you want some level of uh, distribution among nodes for the reasons you stated, if nothing else, geographically from, to, to, to mitigate from a single political entity having control over you know, everything that's what's considered valid on the blockchain. But if you've got your miners and they're in a handful of countries as they are now, and then you've got like watchdog nodes, you got a couple businesses, larger businesses that are doing a lot of transactions and they want to for added security or whatever, or just to be good citizens. A lot of businesses pay to support open source software projects that don't directly benefit their business, but because they use it and they want to add help, help maintain that network. Um, nonprofits could be like watchdog nodes. We run a node uh, at a loss. We raise money for it. We're a foundation to secure the integrity of the blockchain and to make sure that we can holler loudly if something goes wrong. And everybody else can sort of tune into that and see what's what's on there. You know, no, they can they can search the blockchain hosted by whatever this person's known. How is that any less? How does that solve the problem any worse than having a whole bunch of nerds in their basements running individual nodes versus like a couple big watchdog nodes that share the information widely that can kind of check? Well, and by the way, a couple would, would in, a, in a truly global market, you, I mean, you'd probably see tens of thousands of these yeah. watchdogs. Right. Yeah. They're not watchdogs, Certainly. they're just businesses. Even, if, yeah, even businesses if the cost of running a node was, was in the hundreds of thousands of dollars a year, you would still have at least thousands of people doing it if yeah. Bitcoin was used somewhat widely, you know? Oh yeah, all, all over the world. And I think, I think the big block argument makes more sense, which is basically like, okay, whether we limit blocks to one megabyte or whether we have big blocks, we're going to end up with a situation where few people run nodes, yeah. uh, fewer than, we, than, than you might want. The reason is, is both because the incentive to run a node is no longer there if you can't uh, transact on the blockchain or you know the ability to run a node is no longer there if it's too expensive so we have to accept one or the other and you know if, if you consider a node to be important at all then it would be wise to consider which one is the one that's going to lead to the most nodes and i think that one where businesses around the world are transacting with bitcoin and are all running nodes will have way more nodes than than uh yeah small blocks where you know no one is transacting on chain Therefore, only a small number of a handful of people who are using the chain are going to run nodes. Yeah, I, I want to clear something up too. There's a there's a, a quote in this book that I'm working on, which is from um, a Wikipedia article written by a small blocker for why it's important for everybody to run their own node. And it's this ridiculous story where he says essentially, uh, if if nobody is running a node at all then we can't know if the miners are going to inflate the currency and benefit themselves. So we need to make sure that blocks are small so we have some people looking over the miners so they don't get away with funny business. That is a spectacularly bad argument. 
Um, that like all you because, need, because it's the, it's the other miners that have the incentive to prevent a minor. Well, imagine that it's not imagine that it's okay. co-opted or it's political, it's politicized or something. Or something. Yeah. yeah, sure. Effectively. Even if they, uh, even if 80% of the network is like, okay, we're going to now inflate the currency. It literally takes a singular node, one singular honest node to prove that the, the other network forked off and changed the code in some particular way. So yeah, that's the you, beauty of Bitcoin is, is it doesn't take a lot to prove fraud. Right. Right. So, 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 so this it's argument, like, it's like, like saying, you know, if, if you've got whatever, you, you just need, you know, you need one person to watch over the gate of your house or one camera. Um, and if anybody comes through that gate, that camera will alert everybody. You don't right. need everyone in the house 24 seven watching that gate. That's it, why it, you set up the camera, right? The, exactly. the single node does the same thing as 10,000 nodes. Exactly. And, it, and, and it's like, because of the way, you know, Bitcoin is software that uses you kind know, of cryptography and hash functions. The way that these things work is when there's a change, you know about it. So, so this idea that you have to throttle the entire network capacity to make sure that a scenario could be avoided in which literally 100% of the nodes and miners, by the way, because miners are also running a node. So one singular honest miner could prove that the rest of the network forked off. <laughs> you would have to have 100% of the people involved in the system collaborating to well, fiddle with it. In some and this is where way. I think the beauty of Bitcoin is that it is all about game theory and incentives and saying, you know, it would be extremely unlikely for the entire network to, to, all do this same thing at the same time because there's always going to be somebody who is benefits to not go along to defect right right and to try to say we can't trust the game theory we have to make the software itself i mean i guess it still is it's looking at a different type of saying we need ten thousand people but it seems it seems like a much weaker okay so for our second wait, 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 one, oh, one i have to want to because yeah, I want to move well, to some of these other ones but go ahead okay okay i just want to jump in here one, one more thing so when you ask the small blockers what is it about the nodes that keeps the miners in check? Because the way the system works is the miners, majority miners are the ones that are determining the blockchain. Yeah, that's by right. definition. Like the node lets you see what's there, but you, exactly. can't, you can't change it. Or you don't have, exactly. You cannot change the blocks that are there. You can reject them and fork yourself off the network, but like what power do the nodes have? And they always say it's a notification. They would notify the rest of the industry that there has been an invalid block pushed on the blockchain. It has nothing to do with exerting actual power over the miners. It's literally just a notification, which is absolutely trivial to do. So, so there is, is I want there is some power that can possibly be exerted in that, like a, a boycott of some sort could be exercised. Where like, you know, you have everybody basically coordinates to say we're going to reject these blocks. And yeah, yeah. I mean, so that's like there is there is possibly some use there, but like there are a lot of other like one one problem with these node arguments is that there are lots of other things that are part of Bitcoin's security model that like these people completely ignore. So like exchanges are part of Bitcoin's security model, even if it's not like an explicit part. You know, the ability of exchanges to basically say which version of Bitcoin they're going to sell customers is yeah. tremendously huge in being a check on miners, right? So like if you're worried about miners doing something nefarious. Miners have to be able to sell their coins somewhere. You know, they have to be able to to, 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 to use their coins. And if, if, if the exchanges say, oh, well, you know, you guys, even if no one's running a node, the exchanges are just like, well, you guys are doing something that we don't like. You know, that's a lot of power, even though they don't have any, you know, technical power over the system. They exert economic power over the system. And so, it's also... So it's 
It's something right. like a veto power as well, because the threat of uh, <sighs> large scale contention is sufficient to scale, uh, scare miners. So if like the biggest exchanges say, okay, we actually don't like this protocol upgrade, we're going to put our foot down and say, we're, we're going to list this as a different, with a different ticker symbol, that is definitely scary. Well, miners. that was one of the arguments that like Hearn was making was, was basically like, not, not this specific one necessarily, but like, in, in a, in a, like generally he was saying things like, look, you guys are, are thinking of like one variable but like, there's a ton of different thing, ways that these issues can be solved that have nothing to do with like changing technical stuff about Bitcoin. So right. one of the arguments he would make was like, how to pay miners. He's like, well, like, if you're thinking of paying miners purely through transaction fees alone too, like you're being very limited because you're, you're just looking at like technical aspects of the system rather than saying, well, what are the other ways that could make, could make it possible for miners to run a mining business while still making money, you know? And like, it may be possible that a miner would just seem running a mining business as a cost of doing business. Right. You know, basically like, like a company that builds a, uh, a parking structure. You exactly. Know? That's but totally like reasonable. They, they didn't think about anything like that. Instead, it was like very narrow track. We're looking at the system as itself without anything outside of it. And that's like, you know, I think the failure of their mindset. And so uh, the, the question well, of, do you need tons of nodes? The answer is, is, is maybe, maybe it's something like nodes are a means, they're not the end. So that the goal of, of these nodes is to make sure that the network is honest. Now, you don't want to have to trust a single node because now you have a single point of failure and you don't want to have to trust three nodes or five nodes, but you want some more than a few and you want some kind of, you want to ensure that there is an incentive that it's very unlikely that all of them would collude to let's say inflate the supply at one time. That's what you're trying to accomplish. Accomplishing that by having 10,000 hobbyists running it is right. doesn't seem any more. In fact, it seems probably slightly less likely to me than accomplishing it by having 1,000 um, you know, larger organizations with a vested interest in their business of making sure that the blockchain's honest or else they'll go out of business. And they can share that with all these users and they can the users can look at it and can, and can see if they're telling the truth about what they find. They can make it public. Um, but it seems like you certainly do not need millions of nodes or hundreds of thousands or whatever it is. Um, you just need enough. Right. And uh, it, it's also helpful to distinguish when you're trying to understand who has the power in Bitcoin between nodes. Not all nodes are created equal. So the mythology is that your personal node matters. No, your personal node doesn't matter. If you want to say that the non-mining nodes have power, you have to talk about the exchanges. And there might be other like payment processors, for example, are also going to be important in determining and you know, the, the politics of, of Bitcoin, but your the average more economically e active, I think. Exactly. The, the power. Exactly. Exactly. It directly comes from their economic influence over the network. So let's, well, so let's... And something to consider about nodes too, is like big, big block Bitcoin, you might see better incentives to actually run a node. Like, like if, if imagine our, you have, you have nodes are costly to run and you've got a node that's costing $10,000 a month to run, that's a business that could be used, you know, could, built by someone, you know, basically offering node as a service kind of thing. Mm -hmm. You know, like I'm going to create a node and I'm going to charge people basically to be able to trust 
you know, basically trust that I am uh, securing the, their, their transactions, securing the blockchain for them, you know? And, and if sense. you have like, any, any level of competition at all, then the amount of trust you need to have in them is very low because if there are others saying they're lying, they're, they're, they're giving you false shit, you know, um, they have an incentive to, to bring that. It's just like mining, you know, there's an incentive to, okay, so let's, let's get to this other thing. And this, that hard fork, the, because Satoshi hard-coded, hard-coded, even if he intended to raise the block size later, he or she or whoever, the fact that now you need a hard fork in order to raise it, that's a good reason to not raise it because hard forks themselves are bad or dangerous. Um, if I'm, correct me if I'm wrong, but there were several hard forks before anyone started making that argument. Is that not the case? Well, tell me about the argument that hard forks themselves are bad and dangerous. I mean, it's just been refuted. So this was a more persuasive argument before there were contentious hard forks. I think that's the, the big difference here. Um, a hard fork just being your old version of the software is not going to connect you to the present network. That did happen a couple of times. There were some, some bugs that were corrected where if you, if you actually like ran the original software from 2009, you're not going to be connected to the rest of the network because of the hard forks that are there, but they weren't contentious. Um, so the, but- the, the claim that they're bad is basically that it's, it's dangerous because now anybody who hasn't updated the software is kicked off the network. Yeah, so so it so used so that's to be a feature of Bitcoin, like the idea nodes can leave and rejoin the network at will. Like that's a feature. Yeah, I, yeah. I never quite understood why that's supposed to be dangerous in and of itself. So, so I, I think the idea is, well, well, so it depends on how much credibility you want to put in their argument. So around the Segwit2x time, around 2017, the argument was it's too dangerous, and they were saying that. If there's any um, uh, companies or businesses or individuals that are trying to use Bitcoin during this time, their transactions might not go through. And so that's basically like a switchover argument that during the period when it's happening. Yes. Yeah. You could have things. And then it's not a reliable network. It's not totally uncensorable. It's like, oh, there's going to be some disruption in the the ability of of people to use the network. Therefore, we just can't do it. We can't risk it. If you, if you give, you know, if you want to say that their arguments are credible, I actually think it was just 100% fear mongering. And there were so, there was so much time wasted arguing with people that are like, we just can't have any hard forks. And then we've just seen that empirically refuted over and over and over and over again on multiple chains, like Ethereum hard forks, hard forked multiple times. They do that right regularly. BCH has hard forked regularly multiple times. It's really not that big well, a deal. Well, BCH has had some problems from hard forking. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So, but it's not because it's a hard fork. It's because it's a contentious hard fork. So the idea that you're going to hard fork over some... It's it's not the act of hard forking itself that is dangerous. It's potentially the changes that you're making or whatever else. Well, yeah. I mean, it's exactly what we saw in 2017, right? If you have people that disagree, then you can have a messy circumstance. If there's a hard fork, you can have a chain split and then some of the network gets forked off. But of course, this is also... Yeah, go ahead. That's why I think having a culture that is, is generally opposed to forking is a good thing or changes is a good thing. But I just think that the argument they made, it's like, it's like these, these problems go away once you start, like you have to, you have to do it at some point. So you better do it now. Yeah. It depends on what you're you know, like, well, it's, like, what are you forking over? You're talking about the freaking block size limit. Well, it, the it thing- also seems to me, let's, let's clarify the difference between a hard fork and a soft fork and tell me if I'm wrong, but 
a hard fork is where you, you change the software in such a way that now anyone running previous versions, uh, it won't work. They won't sync up to the network. So they have to run the new version. A soft fork is you basically introduce a change in such a way that um, nobody has to take any action. They can sort of just keep running the software and the change is there. There are many ways in which it feels to me like a soft fork is far more pernicious and potentially oh, yes. risky and potentially violating the will of the people running nodes. Because if you write a hard fork, they can choose to run it or not. And let's say the vast majority say, we don't want to run your new version, right? Then you've got something, especially if they're mining nodes, uh, then you've got something where like the, your, your, your proposed changes essentially lose out in the marketplace. But if you just put them in through a soft fork, nobody has any choice. The developers basically become gods. They become the centralized point. Am I wrong about that? No, and this has been talked about even by some uh, small blockers like um, the gentleman who I, his name I keep forgetting, that my guy I had a debate with, the, you know, I'm talking about the smart guy. Paul, Paul Stork. Stork. Paul, Paul Stork has said this, that he doesn't like, he thinks soft forks are kind of, he thinks hard forks are bad too, but there's there's problems with soft forks. The tyranny of the soft fork, uh, Vitalik Buterman's talking about that as well, that there's a sense in which they're a lot more pernicious um, than hard forks. And I remember this, I remember this as well too. When this I mean, the happening. very people who are like, you know, give the users, the nodes a voice are like, no, hard forks are bad. We need soft forks, which don't give the user a voice. There's also a case, and I remember this being made, I want to say as early as 2015, where they were saying just from a code standpoint, when you're going the soft fork route, things get more and more and more complex and you get all this technical baggage. And then, and then like you have SegWit, which is this whole new transaction structure that is extremely complicated and it's not, nothing's clean. When you have a hard fork, you can clean up the code a lot and reduce that technical baggage. And I think that's all, I, I remember, uh, I remember there was a whole group of people I, I was actually in this, um, uh, as, as well as like, I think the people from BitPay and, and when there was a whole debate about SegWit and are we going to have SegWit? Well, you need SegWit to have a lightning network. Part of the compromise, these people bend, bend over backwards to try to compromise to the small blockers. They said, look, I guess we can do SegWit, but let's make it a hard fork so that we don't have this technical baggage and we can also increase the block size limit at the same time. Like we'll do, we'll do SegWit, but it's got to be a hard fork. Um, and of course that was, that was shot down. That was unacceptable. Yeah. The, so the, I think, I think part of the problem with hard forks is that you can, people can lose faith in the network. Like if you imagine you've got a global Bitcoin and there's some kind of hard fork that happens. I mean, even now, like, like DCH hard forks, like, even though, even though it's not that bad, like you, you see a situation where BitPay will announce for, for several days, there's no Bitcoin cash transactions. Yeah. Right. And at scale, like that's pretty shitty. I mean, that would be very shitty if everyone were using it as a form of global money. Now, right now, that, that's why I think it's important to do it now, though. Like right. you, because if, because there is some truth to it. Like a big hard fork could be massively disru economically disruptive. Yeah, well, I think, I think that's a, to me, that doesn't seem like a problem that's unique to hard forks as a mechanism of updating the code. Per I mean, perhaps it is because you can get kicked off the network, but it almost, I almost like that. I almost like that it raises the cost of making a change to the code and says, look, right. you better damn well want this because it's going to cause some inconvenience. So versus well, it, all, it also incentivizes like you can, you can, you don't get kicked off the network, but the code can get shittier and shittier and get broken and you won't even know it. Right. Yeah. 
Well, and it incentivizes, I think, like, like Treg says, uh, connectivity in Bitcoin is incentivized. Like on the long haul, like it, it, I think it creates a culture like businesses are responsible yeah. for checking on the code that they're running, you know? And, it encourages and more transparency. Like nobody, nobody should ever get blindsided by an update. It should be well known and established. And, and you know, well, again, I, I, I think ideally, it incentivizes that. Yeah. But it, there are there are risks and downsides to hard forks and soft forks. But I think the argument that hard forks in and of themselves are uniquely dangerous to Bitcoin um, seems far fetched to me. That's that's just been empirically refuted. The network doesn't fall apart. Um, it just totally depends on what the proposed change is. Like we've seen a great example where in BCH, there was a, uh, a hard fork. They, they hard forked too many times for unnecessary reasons. They were doing it just because it's like, well, we're going to update every six months. This is the way it is. And that's a burden also on things like exchanges like if, or, or other businesses. If you're running some software, you don't want to get a message that says, oh, by the way, you have to mandatorily update the software within this time frame or you're going to be kicked off. That's annoying. But when we're talking about the block size limit, it's like that is the scaling, that is the scaling bottleneck of all scaling well, bottlenecks. And, and that all is of the, the one. All yeah. of the people who would have been affected by the hard fork, you know, potentially falling off the network. They were pretty much all begging for it. They were it clamming they, for it. They yes. were dying for it because they wanted the bigger blocks. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So, um, you know, we're, and we're not even getting into uh, all of the absurd, bogus ways that the narrative was changed. We're, we're trying to stick just to the arguments themselves uh, that small blockers make here, not the not the shady tactics used. But let's let's move to another one. And I've heard this said, and I and I don't know if people mean this in some way other than what we already addressed that that there won't be as many nodes, but do bigger blocks cause greater centralization? Um, is there is there a is there another type of centralization other than you may have fewer nodes running uh, potentially if you exceed something? You know, I mean, you won't have fewer nodes running if you're only going up to 32 most likely, but you may have fewer nodes running. Is there a different kind of increase in centralization that can occur with larger blocks? You could get mining centralization. I mean, especially at scale. If you're talking 32 meg blocks, not that big a deal. If you're talking gigabyte blocks, then yeah, that that definitely can cause um, minor centralization, which which is a problem as I see it for all proof of work. Um, well, I was going to say, okay, help me understand that because from my understanding, the cost of mining has to do with the difficulty more than it does the size of the blocks. Is that incorrect? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's both. So the difficulty is like how much electricity you're pouring into it, but also you have bandwidth costs. Like if okay, you are- got it. So the, ban it, the bandwidth side is what gets crimped with the block, got it. Right, so if you're talking about downloading a gigabyte or, and or uploading a gigabyte you know, every 10 minutes, that's gonna add up. And, and storage well, costs, and you have, you know. And miners have to do a lot of work you know, to, to upgrade to that, their, their, you know, stuff to be able to manage those blocks too, you know, if they're already, if they're already sort of built on a system of one megabyte, right? So, but they're yeah, not just going to Ram, scale. Ram yeah. is another big cost that like managing the UTXO set can be really expensive because you got to build uh, all this how stuff many, in Ram. Um, how many of the miners that are currently mining BTC would be incapable of mining uh, BCH or BSV that have blocks that can be 32 or much more in the case of BSV. I don't know. I don't know what the, I mean, cause I know that like, well, at least at the, first it was pretty much all the same miners. Now BTC has uh, added more in, in BCH, but they BCH and BSV seem to have about 10 to 15 miners 
at any given time. And B, BTC seems to have 20 to 25. Like there's not like, it's not like some orders right. of magnitude different thing, but maybe that changes over time. I don't know. It is, uh, yeah, is, yeah, is, I mean, is, is centralization of mining with large blocks. Do you see that as a, as a legit concern? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, mean, I don't think it's, I don't, I just don't think it's exclusive really to large blocks. I think the question is how much centralization of mining in general would be a problem for any proof of work coin. And I don't know the answer. It, it, we might've already reached it. It might be that when you have, you know, 15 miners, that's all right. Maybe you go down to five miners and that that's possible. I don't actually know, but I do think it's a, it's a valid theoretical concern to be worried about um, mining centralization. It kind of, it kind of, it kind of leaves you with a question like how many miners is enough? And if you just say, well, as many as possible. So we need one, one megabyte blocks. You could sort of look at the reality and say, well, we have one megabyte blocks and there's still only like 20 right. miners. So like- well, to me, it's not even clear that like small blocks are the best way to get the most miners. I mean, right. it could be totally possible that very high transaction volume is you know making it very profitable for miners would be the better way to get more miners yeah i think part of the objection maybe is people don't like the idea of they're being corporatized miners so like you might actually have more miners if you have massive blocks but you're only going to have like big players big companies that, are there any not big players right now i would no. imagine and btc you don't think there are any? i don't think there have been for like five well there years. are there are pools since so a6 sense, came out no there are pools where like there are smaller miners who are connecting the pools but like like that's still like a corporate structure and the pools like the pool owner exerts like quite a bit of power and control and a lot of a lot of core people bitch about that and complain that like yeah because you didn't foresee mining pools which is bullshit but like it's also like there are no like there's not like a lot of like tiny little miners who are just like connecting to the network and mining bitcoin I guess I mean like it's a matter of scale. We're talking, you know, Bitmain, for example, is just this like billion dollar company, absolutely massive. Um, and I, I, I think you could still, like I've heard stories of people in BCH who at least have backgrounds in mining and it's, you know, it's a few hundred thousand dollars they have invested. It's not some massive industry. Um, and I do think that can at least be plausibly more preserved on a small block coin than- uh, But is that even safer, blocks. you know? Like are these- Oh, I don't know. Because like you, you think about a state actor is going to have a, a, a possibly have an easier time taking down a, a mom and pop mining shop than a big corporation. Well, yeah, I mean, I just think even I think when you think about the system about global digital cash, it's silly to imagine that you're going to have mom and pop miners. I just well, I was, I I was just going to say like again, we've already seen the mining become more larger and larger and more you know corporatized with one megabyte blocks. And the question of how many additional miners do you lose if the blocks are 32 megabytes? Probably almost none. Probably none of the current miners. What if they're several gigabytes? Probably some, but by the time the blocks get to the size, get to where there's enough transactions where they are several gigabytes, how much more difficult will mining have become already? And how much more will the arms race of miners and whatever gotten to the point where there's already more centralization just for economies of scale reasons? Like, yeah. I, it's not obvious to me that centralization of mining is something to be concerned about, but it's not obvious to me that increasing the block size sufficiently speeds that up more than 
more than in its absence to, to make it really that, that much of a big deal. Yeah. And I'm sorry, kind of with Satoshi on this, where it's just an inevitable part of the system. He's got a quote somewhere where he's like, I'm not, Obviously. Doing, yeah, like yeah. I'm not doing a socialist thing. Like I know that, the, that, that this is going to be a specialized thing. We're going to get this big server farms. I just think that's how it's built. Well, it's funny. That yeah. There's no way it's not built that way. Like, right. like, yeah, like people that complain about ASICs, I'm like, and like, what did you expect? Like, this <laughs> like, are you kidding me? Like the systems are competitive. Of course, this means it's working. Be. You're getting better and better capital goods in, into the production. So it, it always interests me too that the, the small blockers who are concerned about mining centralization, which is one component of the of the network, um, will will also say Bitcoin should only be a settlement layer, and then you'll have second layer solutions. I mean, Lightning itself, for example, basically needs hubs, which are basically banks. And, and, and they'll often say, I think in the Bitcoin standard, it even says, you'll basically have banks that are doing this stuff for you. And it's like, well, why is centralization of mining a concern, but centralization of the payment layer is not a concern? It just I have no idea. Strange. It seems like a very strange. Some, like, someone I, asked uh, Seifstein about uh, privacy and that approach. And he said something like, in response, he said, if you need privacy, uh, use a bank that doesn't do KYC. <laughs> i was like what like one like what bank doesn't do kyc right i mean like <laughs> yeah like i, I mean i was super confused it's like what are you talking about uh, there's, there's, like, some, oh, there's some uh in the islands and maybe in switzerland if you know the right people not, he not, called not them, anymore he called them central node operators he said we'd, we'd end up with like something like 1000 to several like to 10,000 central node bank operators or something like that and they would be the only ones who would transact on bitcoin I mean, like, I, I suppose the, you know, the best potential argument for why mining centralization, again, I don't even think that big blocks increase it in a sufficient quantity to worry about. But to say mining centralization, we're really worried about because that's what determines the, um, the total supply. And so if you can't inflate it because mining is decentralized and they're all competing with each other and keeping each other honest, and you know, then the second layer being centralized is not that big of a deal. But to me, it's like, yeah, but that's exactly what you had with gold. You can't inflate the base layer, but what it, what happened on every gold standard? You're issuing gold certificates by by trusted second layer, and they inflated those certificates. So like you just you know, or like we see with Tether, you just lie about what you have in reserves. Um, like that's that's no better. That's a different type of inflation. You're not actually in creating more gold like alchemy, but you're inflating what people think they have in their hands, right? So it's it's I don't think you get away from it. Okay, let's hit another. I one think here. part of the Centralization concern is about the speed at which things happen. And um, like, that's where the core argument becomes especially ridiculous because like you could, you could make the case if like, if we jumped BTC to, you know, one gigabyte or two gigabytes tomorrow, like that could cause more centralization in the system. But like the argument that going from one to two or going two megabytes every other year is going to cause more centralization is bullshit. It is total bullshit. Well, and, so and, and when you think about it, the blocks are getting smaller every year. If you right. if you think in terms of relative to what's technologically possible in terms of bandwidth and whatever. So you look back when that was implemented 10 years ago, one megabyte. In terms of what kind of machine and what kind of bandwidth or brought, you know, was required to do one megabyte, if you did an inflation adjusted technological and Moore's law adjusted for today, 
I'm sure that would be much, much larger than one megabyte. Technology has advanced quite a bit by then. So the fact that it's not growing and keeping up with the technology means it's shrinking relative to what's possible, you know? Yeah, there's an email somewhere where, where Satoshi's asked about scaling. And he says, you know, oh, I don't think it's going to be a big problem. Like in the future, it's not going to be a big deal even to send an HD video over the internet. It's like, shit, we're streaming that stuff onto our cell phones nowadays, you know? Here we are right now. Uh, exactly. Yeah, Bitcoin hasn't, changed to, to, <laughs> Bitcoin hasn't changed to keep up, you know? Right. That, that's what's so crazy. But And, like, there's, no, I mean, and guess, there's no structural reason or economic reason or, or security reason that it can't is, is exactly Well, certain. and there's no reason to like play into the straw men of the core people too, which is like thinking in terms of these, like, while I think we should get rid of the limits, uh, entirely and get rid of them as fast as possible because of like political reasons. I think that the idea that, that, you know, we needed to do that for technical reasons, like you, you could have just gone the two megabyte, four megabyte, eight megabyte, you know, and nothing would have changed. Like if, the system, right. would, like nothing. Literally nothing. Mack and Greg Maxwell and all those people had done what they had said that they wanted to do uh, instead of what Peter Todd was paid to promote by a suspicious agent of the state. Um, that's a that's a separate discussion, but yeah, you know. and, and, and the, the the numbers matter again. When you're talking about 32 meg blocks, you're talking what PayPal was, you know, a decade ago. Like that is a lot of transaction throughput. That could get you a lot of one way, as many years as you need to develop your second layer technology. That is substantial. It's just the the one megabyte is so ridiculously small. How many that it caused so, these problems? How many 18 months does that buy you? at least 18 <laughs> to, to develop the, the lightning <laughs> network. Okay. So here's, here's a final argument. And then I want to transition to where BTC is today and how BTC maximalists see that transitioning to this world that they envision. But the final argument that I've heard is um, high fees are good. You need high fees. You need really high fees. Uh, otherwise this doesn't make sense. Maybe not today, because miners get the block subsidy. And if Bitcoin's value is high, they can make enough money off of that. But in the future, as the block subsidy gets smaller and smaller, you need to have really high transaction fees in order for mining to make economic sense. Otherwise, the whole network will collapse. Responses to that? Well, one is to me, like, I kind of I kind of think that like, if you if you had set up a system where anyone who wanted to buy Bitcoin and use it could do that because it's cheap to buy and use, you'd probably have the value be significantly higher than it is today. And if that were the case, then like in a way, like the subsidy could keep paying for mining for a very long time for something like a hundred years, you know, or more like, like, and there would be no rush to do anything. So, you know, that's one thing, but the, I think with in regards to whether high fees are good or bad is I don't really have a position on that in the sense that like, I think it's. I think the miners should be able to try to charge as much as they want, and users, you know, will pay or not pay. You know, and like that—that's the beauty of the market. Like, users are always going to try to get the cheapest, the cheapest fee possible, and miners are going to try to get the most expensive fee possible. And at some point, they'll find a good, good happy medium. I think in a in so, an open so, put, market. so putting in a, a technological limit that basically prices out all of the people who only want to pay low fees and ensures that the fee that the people transacting are only those willing to pay high fees. Um, you would argue that that is not necessary or detrimental. 
Well, yeah, it's not, I don't think it's, it's fully allowing like a nice market process and pr pricing model to emerge for, for, for what the ideal cost to buy block space on the network should be. And the core arguments that like, well, we can't have that because it's a public good. And what's going to happen is that miners are all going to basically go bankrupt uh, underbidding each other because it doesn't cost them to include a free, it doesn't cost them anything to include one more free transaction. That, that, so that is like the, the, you know, communist socialist argument for why markets won't work. There'll be a race to the bottom and everyone will go out of business. Yeah. And that's literally like, if you, if, uh, the, uh, one second, I'm gonna pull it up on like Bitcoin wiki, um, is the tragedy of the commons on Bitcoin on the Bitcoin wiki. It's, it's like, that's, that's basically the argument. So an, an artificial yeah. restriction on the supply on the, the a number of transactions that can go in a block, um, the idea from a bunch of like self-proclaimed libertarians and market advocates that this is necessary or the market won't work, that the miners can't choose whatever size blocks they want to mine and charge whatever fees they think they can charge and users can, like the idea that a market won't work just seems so, so silly to me. Here's the quote. Uh, uh, miners will accept transactions with any fees because the marginal cost of including them is minimal and users will pay lower and lower fees in the order of Satoshi's. It is possible that honest miners will be under incentivized. <laughs> I mean, that's like, yeah, that's, like in, that's insane. We need price controls miners... to keep to keep production strong. Um, yeah, and that was the argument. Like the miners are basically going to bankrupt themselves. <laughs> so okay, so and so I, I've heard I've heard this that all right, let's let's project out a hundred years or whatever it is when the subsidy uh, the the block reward <laughs> goes away, and you know, the price of Bitcoin is whatever leveled off or whatever. The price wouldn't matter anyway, because the, the subsidy is going away. The subsidy is now gone. Miners just can't make money if transactions are only a few cents. Um, what is your response to that? Yeah, yeah, miners would raise prices. Yeah, I, I think this simple solution here is instead of having a, a, a small amount of high fee transactions, you have a huge amount of low fee transactions. And if you do it that way, then you don't need the, uh, the subsidy anymore because you're making a lot of revenue from increased volume, which is definitely how Satoshi designed it. There's another quote somewhere where he says, I'm pretty sure that there's either going to be a lot of transaction volume or no transaction volume on Bitcoin. And I think if they keep the blocks tiny indefinitely, and you know, if the, if this religious narrative doesn't work um, and the price, uh, you know, Bitcoin goes down, then I think that the chain would be screwed because the, you would have a massive drop in the amount of miners and the security of the network. Um, that would be a problem, but that's yeah, not I've a problem for a long time. I mean, just basic business model wise, like you don't have to have a very small supply of uh, products or services for a very high price. You can also have a very large quantity at a very low price. Like, and to me, if you want Bitcoin to become what everybody dreams and talks about, even the small blockers, the hyper Bitcoinization, a new standard, whatever, you are going to need to have millions and millions of transactions. Um, and that, that means like, you know, the more transactions you can fit in a block, the more competitive uh, a mining, you know, operation is. It just, it, it doesn't even seem possible to scale at the, at the high fee side. Now, of course, the, the answer is scaling will all be done on a, on a second layer that hasn't yet been invented because all the second layers so far don't work 
Um, and need the first layer. Well, th there's a and there's still a, need the first layer, right? You still got to well, open and close. And there may be other ways to pay miners besides just purely transaction fees. I mean, businesses may say, you know, okay, I I I, I want my transactions to be validated uh, quick more quickly or something like that, or or I I want some additional service and I, or or just simply I value I'm doing you know a lot of transactions in Bitcoin. I value security. Therefore, I'm going to pay some fees to miners, essentially, to keep them, you know, operating. Like, I, I think that, I just think like there's, it's a very it's it's a very limited view to think that the only way to pay miners will be transaction fees on the network. It's, it's, it's like, kind of like this, like, let's freeze Bitcoin in time and not imagine any other possible business models or arrangements or anything else that might unfold and like. This is it. And it's just the way that it came about. That's a whole other episode, the history of how this actually happened in the, the campaigns and the so much bullshit and the changing narratives that are completely 180 degree turn from what those people were saying before. But, but I think we've, we've hit sort of the major argument that small blockers make for why they want small blocks. Now I would love to ask you guys, because I have truly tried to find this and I haven't found it anywhere. You will hear BTC Maxi's who are really excited, the price is going up and it's like their whole narrative is it's digital gold. You hold it, you hold it, you hold it. You're not supposed to use it, you hold it. Someday in the future, there'll be payment rails and second layers that you can use it with. But this is going to be the new standard. It's gonna supplant fiat currency and we're gonna have honest money now that can't be inflated. It's, we're gonna have hyper Bitcoinization. Uh, it's gonna become the unit of account, the medium of exchange, it's gonna, it's gonna transform and revolutionize the world. What, what is the, help me think of like the best possible scenario from what is the path from here to there? So where we are now, BTC is not able to be used for anything except to basically buy and hold. And you can send it to each other, but it's very, it's inconvenient. And it not reliably money. used. I mean, occasion, like there are times when you can use it. Like there are times when it's a low transaction fee, but it's not reliable. You can't yeah. trust that like tomorrow I'm going to be able to go to the store and use my Bitcoin. Like And, I and, and, none, of, and none of the advocates want that. They don't want you to use it. They just want you to buy it and hold it. And now institutional money is coming in. More and more people are going to be buying it through third parties on Robinhood or PayPal or whatever. Um, where it's, you know, or they're going to buy it through an ETF. It's, it's just, it's another item in their investment portfolio. And so like, I can see a path to Bitcoin completely collapsing and dying. I could see some scenarios where that happens. I can see a path to Bitcoin basically staying as it is rising in price or getting to whatever in price and just permanently being another thing that you can put some money in your Vanguard fund in like any other stock or bond or gold or precious metal, but it has no revolutionary powers, no threat to the status quo. It's just one more asset to park money in, which is not a bad thing. I can see a path to that. I don't see the path to Bitcoin from what it is now to a revolutionary technology that become, that becomes a new gold standard. What is like, what is the story that gets us there? Have you heard anyone articulate that? without just yep. skipping the middle step and saying, someday everything will be great. Just keep buying it and holding it. You know what I mean? Well, yes, you just got a, it's sort of a, a version of that last part you just said. So you could say there's enough intelligence and money that has been powered into BTC such that at some point they'll get their shit together and will develop sufficiently advanced technology so you can use it in commerce. It's a hard argument to argue against 
like, well, there's going to be some breakthrough in the future because all the smart people are working on it. Okay, maybe that's one potential path. So that so everyone has poured their money into it and basically said that we all believe in this thing. It's mainstream. People believe that it's going to retain value and they want to put their value in it. And then what? Maybe the maybe the price increases level off so that there's no longer an incentive to just keep buying it. And now it's like, okay, well, now we got to be able to do something with it. Now somebody will build some second layers that let us exchange I it. I don't even know if you need the price leveling off. It could just be that when you have so much money and investment revolving around it, surely you're going to have the you know people from the biggest companies that are putting their heads together and figuring out how we can make the system work. I want to, because I hear that, you know, Gresham's law invoked a lot that, you know, bad money drives out good and that, you know, people aren't going to use Bitcoin if it just keeps appreciating in value. And so that, no, why would you use it right now? That'd be dumb. You hold it because it keeps increasing in value. Um, I don't know, apparently like you're just going to go to your grave with it and you'll never use it uh, in, in some of these people's minds. But, but once I have heard people say, once it levels out in price, once it's fully everybody's, you know, everybody's holding their savings in Bitcoin and it sort of levels a little bit, then you'll need to start to actually use it and spend it because all your savings will be in there. Then you'll develop some kind of, you know, whatever. And, and even in that story, what I don't get is how is that an improvement? Because getting there requires all the on-ramps and off-ramps are banks, are all the same institutions. They're all KYC. They're all... How does that undermine government currency in any way? You could say it prevents inflation, but if you're going through trusted third parties as payments in order to translate it into goods and services, then you know that shit's going to be manipulated, right? Or like, you know, governments are going to get involved. I guess I just have a hard time seeing from a maximalist standpoint, how does it go from totally unusable as anything but a speculative asset to suddenly all of its use cases open up and now it undermines the status quo and is like a giant threat to the state or whatever. I just don't see that. Well, I must, I'd also be concerned about the scenario where like, where you, that you laid out where like everyone's storing their Bitcoin on these like custodial KYC banks and stuff like that. It's like a legacy finance asset. Like at that point, like you got a bunch of public companies holding it. Are they going to be able to even muster the, the willpower or the, you know, coordination to be able to uh, or legal uh you know stuff that 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 will be necessary in order to change the blockchain or upgrade it to be able to be more useful at that point yeah you know because it could be the case that like they, they're like oh well, we'll figure it out later but then later is all these public companies holding it all these banks holding it and then yeah, they're and if just you've like, got oh, spaghetti code no fuck risk, you don't change it yeah the risk and cost of changing it gets higher and higher and higher if people are holding it it's it's a weird, it's a weird sort of, yeah, the, more, the more public companies that hold it, the more government will try to regulate it. I think yeah. the more, I think also the more reasonable the, uh, the outcome will be is that companies hold it kind of on your behalf and they give you a little IOU. I mean, we've already seen that with PayPal, right? Yeah, you can buy it. You just can't send it off our platform and you know, you can't actually use it. We'll use it for you. I think yeah, that's, that's, what Rob, that's what Robinhood does. That's yeah. basically what, like, so I was listening to a CNN thing with Visa the other day and the guy was basically saying like, we want to, we want to bring that utility to Bitcoin by allowing people to sell their Bitcoin for, uh, for Visa tokens on the Visa network or Visa credits on the Visa network basically for, for and, and so they can go spend 
their money at, at you know actual businesses and that's basically what it's going to be like it's like i get it i get it we have a world where every individual person is running their own node but then they're relying on bank of america to transact on their behalf. So basically Bank of America or Visa, they can outsource the cost of running the network to all the users, <laughs> but they get to take on all of the, the centralized, you know, the actual, the, the money parts. You know, it is, it is weird. Like everybody's got to run your own node, but like when the fees are so high, you can't get more people adopting Bitcoin using it themselves. I, I know Derek, you and I have both talked to people, like wealthy people who are throwing some serious resources into this stuff who don't even, they don't even know that you can transact with it. They don't even know what an address is. They don't no, even no, know not how to at send all. it, yeah. you know? It's incredible. <laughs> yeah, they, they literally think it's just like something that you ask Vanguard to invest in for you, you know? Yep. No, I, I know a, a good, lot of people yeah. like that. I know, I, know, I know a lot of people I talk to because whenever I tell them the, the, some of the stuff I do and, and, and they'll be like, oh yeah, I own some Bitcoin. And it's, it's incredible to me that the narrative that they have about it. Yeah, I just don't okay. see a world where all the growth is coming from that type of user. And then all of a sudden it transitions to we all have peer-to-peer -peer money that undermines the state, you know, like. Here, here I got it. I got it. This okay. is actually the most plausible scenario. Okay, help me out. They raise the freaking block size limit to make big block Bitcoin. I mean, realistically, like let's say 20 years in the future, the core people are dead. There are new developers <laughs> and companies that have taken over. And now they go, oh, look, we discovered this magical way to make the technology work. They raised the, the block size limit. Then you're talking, then you're talking. Yeah. Yeah, I, I've said that on the show before too. Like the possibility that they do a block size increase is, I mean, you know, at a certain point, I just think that the, the one thing that might prevent them from doing that in the future would be something like, you know, just too many, too many big interests holding a lot yeah. of Bitcoin who are just resistant to, to those kind of things, you know, like yeah, I don't think it'll matter by then because if people are holding it, they'll they'll just be used to using trusted third parties to transact yeah. with it. And I, the I micropayments think... use case, somebody else will have already solved that already, and it won't be a revolution. Well, and most people don't care about some of that other stuff. Like you have to kind of give it to them whether they wanted it or not. Like the peer-to-peer, -peer, the peer-to-peer -peer idea, like is is fairly niche, I think. And well, so well, that like, Derek, I think you've said this before that. What's cool about Bitcoin is it smuggles in these things. Like yeah. if Bitcoin just, if the blocks were just raised as, as intended and the way that BSV is, for example, you don't need to care about peer-to-peer -peer or any of these other things, immutable public ledger. If you can do things with it, you can't do with fiat, like you can do on Twitch or you know any of the micropayment use cases that you enjoy doing or just paying yeah. people quickly and instantly. Then all those things are smuggled in and people all of a sudden normies turn into libertarian activists based entirely on self-interest and not ideology. But the way it is yep. now, you, you've got to force them to change their ideology and inconvenience themselves in order to do something that's good for the network. You must run a node, you must believe, you must read you know, the Bitcoin standard and then properly, it's like the whole idea is you don't wanna have to make people do things that are inconvenient in order to get the benefits of, of Bitcoin, you know? Yeah, that's why most privacy products are just not that big. It's just because like, if you're starting with privacy as your only thing, then like you're only gonna attract people who are diehard believers in privacy rather than like, let's get a bunch of people to use our product and then give them privacy even if they don't want it, you know? 
Yeah. So I want to take a positive uh, angle on this. So I think there's something that is really great that BTC is demonstrating, which is that the narrative of the separation of money and state is powerful. Now, they're building on the wrong coin that doesn't work and they're not going to achieve that vision. But it does seem to be that there's lots of people who are really inspired and ravenous for market money. That's got to be a good sign. Yeah, I think it's huge. I think it's huge. Like what's happening with Bitcoin, I don't see as a negative thing. Like, great, another, another asset to invest in. Uh, people, all the narratives are, are good. People saying, yeah, privacy and encryption, even though Bitcoin is not private and it's not encrypted, but those are good things that people are, and people, normie people are talking like those are good things. Money that doesn't inflate. The, the freaking Winklevoss brothers are talking about money that's better than Federal Reserve money. That's a good thing. I totally agree with that. I, I just don't see how it can fulfill that, that rhetoric um, without either getting, getting corrupted so that it, you know, it's, it's just uh, it's just rhetoric and it doesn't actually do it or just getting completely destroyed and, and breaking. Well, and the degree to which it, it, it delays or subverts the goal of doing that would be a negative in the sense that, you know, the original Bitcoin was much better at all those things. And so if you've got this sort of imposter version that is everyone thinks is going to do those things for a very long time and is putting all this manpower and money into it, you know, like to me, like that's, you know, it, it's frustrating to watch that because it feels like we should be much further along. Well, and, and especially if it has some catastrophic collapse, right? What does that do to the ability for another alternative? You know, it's kind of like some of the early nuclear power, all these government run plants and shit, they do all do, do a crappy job. Yeah. And they have accidents and problems. And now it's like, nobody wants to touch nuclear power ever again, because it was done so badly by stupid governments that, you know what I mean? Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. If it, if it collapses, it's like, oh, we learned from that lesson. We're never going to try this digital decentralized money again, you know? That, that's true. But yeah. I, I do think that the success of the narrative um, is pretty impressive considering how radical it is. And, and even in when people are talking about it and like, if you go the whole Bitcoin standard route, even if you accept the stupid ideas that are in there, it's still a radical vision. It's like a radical libertarian vision in a lot of ways. And I think people, you know, are lots of people, normal people and even institutional types are buying into it. Yeah. It's, it's cool to talk like a cypherpunk right now, which I think is good. I think that's good for the world. Yeah. Um, by the way, the Bitcoin standard, uh, I have not read it. Derek has mercifully read it on my behalf and shared it with me, the uh, relevant points. But I find it really funny, Derek, we were talking about this, that isn't the foreword written by Nassim Taleb? And, yeah, that's hilarious. And, and now he's like disavowed those guys and he thinks that Bitcoin is bad. But but even in the foreword itself, you said that he like contradicts the thesis of the Maxis right in the, in the foreword? Yeah, in like a big way because like the Maxis position is basically like no altcoin, no matter what, no matter, even if it's an exact copy of Bitcoin could ever possibly replicate Bitcoin. And that's like an essential tenet of like Seifdeen's thesis. And the book literally says, if Bitcoin fails, we'll just do it again. And like, we'll just try it again and again and again. And no matter what's good, like, we're going to get it right one day. It was really funny to read that. And I, I brought it up to some guys and they were like, yeah, but like, yeah, he just, he just, he just really likes Talib though. So he put it in there. I was like, okay, but if like if anyone else had said that, you'd be called like a shit coiner scammer who doesn't understand Bitcoin, you know? 
And like, that's like an essential point of the book is that like only Bitcoin BTC in its current inception can do what the book is outlining. No possibility for Bitcoin cash or, or Litecoin or anything else, you know? I, I also love the, the arguments that like, look, all this stuff you guys are saying about what might be a better version of Bitcoin doesn't matter because BTC has won. And it's like, well, it's got more hash power, therefore it's more secure. Well, that's irrelevant because so far, neither BCH or BSV has had any security problems, even with yeah. the fraction of the hash power. So it's like, how much, like, how much more than totally secure do you need to be secure, right? Like nothing's totally secure, but it's like, okay, nobody's broken into my house. So why do you need three triple locks on yours? And I'm getting away with one just fine. That's not an argument. It's more secure if there's not a security vulnerability, but the, but the price one, like, look, the market has spoken clearly, clearly the technical specifications of BTC are preferred by the market. Cause look at the price clearly it is the price has gone up because People want small blocks that's spoken. And I, I use the analogy with Derek. It's like, oh yeah, all those same libertarians would then say, clearly the price of housing over the last 30 years in the San Francisco Bay area proves that the government policies in San Francisco are preferred dramatically by the market. That is exactly what businesses, individuals, and entrepreneurs want because the prices there of real estate reflect that the demand is there. And it's like such a stupid, narrow view of like, why, nobody's buying BTC because they studied the protocol and said, oh, one megabyte, I want that shit. You know what, <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, I know. Well, so, so we, with security too, like, in fact, it, it's, it's the case that not only like, like is you only, you only need enough security to be secure, uh, also that it's it's further that the miner like a smart miner would actually want in a certain sense like less security like they would only want to have to spend just enough to be secure and they would want like they would want to be able to keep hash power in reserve not turned on basically like like that's the thing is like you don't you don't like the hash power in and of itself is not necessarily indicative of of what the possible security could be on the network so like, you know, if you're talking about Bitcoin cash security, it's like, well, imagine miners start attacking Bitcoin cash. I guarantee what's going to happen is you're going to see the hash rate go up tremendously. It's that like, like you don't need it on right now. The difficulty is low. There's no reason to have it on unless there's going to be a problem. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, we both, we've all seen the power of the, the narrative and how effective it, is, it has been in instilling this weird religious belief about Bitcoin, it's, it's Bitcoin everything. in people's minds. It's literally everything. You, you could have the technology be destroying right. value, and if the narrative's strong enough, people will keep adopting it. So, so what I wonder is that, that momentum behind the propping up of the narrative, does that continue indefinitely, regardless of how, the BTC, how high the BTC price is? Like I could see it. I could at least tell a story in which the BTC hit $100,000. Oh my gosh, it's the biggest deal in the world. And then those minds that have been driving the insanity and the, the narrative for so long say, look, I made $20 million or more. I'm good. I'm just going to retire and, and I'm not in the fight anymore. Do you think that'll ever happen? And if it does, is that like, would that be substantial if the, if the, if the narrative engineers retired. I mean, I think, 
I think a very small percentage may, because for most people, it's not just about money. It's like a sense of identity is, is more important, right? Once you've gotten, once you've gotten your, your monetary needs met. Um, and like, that's who you are. That's your identity. And you want to keep doing that. Yeah, you'll cash out some and you'll, you know, increase your, your lifestyle, but you're not going to retire from being somebody who does that. Very few will, I think. Um, yeah, but do they I, matter? At that point, I, like, the narrative is bigger than the individuals, right? It's the individuals who begin the narrative wheel rolling and then it catches on to, to cultural zeitgeist and there's other like fortunate happy accidents and memes and things in it. And it becomes something much bigger than any of those players. And if they walked away at that point, I think the narrative has its own power. It doesn't mean that it, it can come crashing down for any number of reasons at any time, but I don't think that a handful of the, you know, the OGs who, who created the social engineering campaigns around small blocks initially, that they walk away and it just dies. I think it's got legs of its own at this point. And it's, yeah, so many I think it's grown beyond them. Reality. When I, when I see like Tim Ferriss talking about Bitcoin as digital gold, I mean, it's got, I think, I honestly, I, I think it's, it's grown beyond them by significantly. And that in fact, it could be the case in one, one day that they, it comes back to bite them in the ass. And, 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 and so far as they, they have created something that like the mainstream takes it and runs with their own narrative about it. And it starts to diverge to some extent mm. from the ones that they've pushed. And they're like, oh crap, you know? But well, it's almost think- like, it's almost like Bitcoin is like, at this point, it's like a mirror and it is whatever you, you see in it because nobody uses it. So nobody knows what it actually is. Everybody's talking about it third hand. Like, Oh, I love Bitcoin. Why do you love Bitcoin? Because I heard a book, a podcast about it. I heard about it. I didn't use it. I didn't interact with it. I didn't do something with it. I just, I heard about it, right? And now I heard about a guy who heard about it and I heard about it. And because it's detached from any grounding in what it actually is, it can be anything. And like Derek said, right now, that narrative is, is largely a good one, that it's uh, inflation proof and it's for this. But you could take that anywhere you want because it's, it's, it's already completely divorced from the reality of Bitcoin. You can already be- like it and put billions of dollars in it because you think it's something that it literally isn't. How far away can that go? How far removed from what Bitcoin actually is can it be? It could be anything. So you think the narrative, you think the narrative is stronger that people are identifying with it rather than the narrative being you're going to make money by buying it. It's because if, if, if the if the price levels out, we hit some level on which it's Oh like, yeah, the price is, I, I think the price is a huge role to play. So I think the, the, you will make money buying it or you will at least be safe from losing money to inflation from buying it is huge. But that's not enough. People want to make it into something more because that, that it inspires your imagination more. And it sounds too scammy to be like, hey, buy this shit because you'll make money, right? Like, that's part of it, but you want to be like, well, why? Why will it make money? Well, because it's this new thing. It's it's using math and algorithms, and it's it can't be inflated, and it's better than the Federal Reserve, and it's and it's the future, and it's technology. You got to wrap it in some other shit that sounds exciting, because you know what I mean. Like, it's not enough to just say, hey, this will make money. Why? You think it's totally it doesn't matter, but it'll make money. That's and that's you- dangerous to people. They don't want to do that. And even if it's not making people money, you think that that additional narrative is strong enough to keep it, to keep the momentum going. I think uh, somewhat. Hmm. If it levels off 
for a long time, then it's probably okay. If it dips for a bit, it's probably okay. If it has a huge, massive crash that lasts several years, like we had after 2017, each one of those, I think, gets costlier and harder for the narrative to recover from as the narrative gets bigger, because you have more and more people who are not the true believers who are like, I'm going to hold it no matter what to my grave because I'm the floppy man, you know, and more and more people who are like, I was brought in on this under false pretenses. It's been four years now and I've lost, four, you know, 75% of what I put into it and my board is breathing down my neck. Like, the narrative can turn sour quicker too, as it gets more power. You know what I mean? Well, I think uh, one thing you see is like the narrative is already changing a little bit. Like um, look at the way Michael Saylor talks about Bitcoin. It's not actually how the core people necessarily talk about Bitcoin. And Michael Saylor has actually said things that like completely contradict what they say. And is like very what? much, like not of the cypherpunk sort of persuasion. It's like, we're not replacing fiat at all. Like Bitcoin's not about replacing fiat. That's a big one. Bitcoin's not about mm-hmm. like getting out of regulators. Like a lot of the cypherpunk guys are like pissy, pissy about that a little bit. But like, you, I could easily see someone like Michael Saylor becoming the new cult leader mm-hmm. of Bitcoin. And so yeah. Bitcoin literally becomes it like it's cypherpunk origins and the stuff sort of around that literally just go away. And it literally yeah. becomes like, mainstream financial asset and all it is is about you know inflation yeah i I mean to me that seems like the inevitable course it's funny tk always says this the the fourth numpty oh derek i must have offended him uh that the, the dream that the nerds have is like well once bitcoin becomes big i'll be like the cool guy right because i was in on it early and it's like no once it becomes big cool guys will come to bitcoin and they'll still be the cool guys right and so like whoever the early Bitcoin influencers are and whatever, the bigger it becomes, the more a Mark Cuban or an Elon Musk or a whoever, they decide they're going to come in and they're going to start talking about Bitcoin. And who's MSNBC going to go ask to talk about Bitcoin? Are they going to go ask Michael Saylor who runs a multi-billion dollar company or Elon Musk or Mark Cuban, who's a known name, or are they going to go ask, you know, Andreas Antonopoulos or some guy who's like Jimmy Song, I'm an OG. And I have a podcast. It's like, we don't care. You're, you're not big anymore compared to now there's big people in Bitcoin. They're going to go to the biggest name who's associated themselves with Bitcoin. And if right. that's Roger Ver, they'll go to Roger Ver. If that's Jimmy Song, they'll go to Jimmy Song. If that's Mark Cuban, they'll go to Mark Cuban. So I think that, and those guys seem to know so little about what it actually is from the way I hear them right. The narrative can go all kinds of directions. That's fascinating to think about. So it's like, we're still probably, well, although I don't follow BTC news that much, so maybe we've already transitioned out of it, but last I have followed, we're still in the phase in which it's being led by the priests of the cypherpunk order who have cypherpunk flavors to them. I think it's right. You think it's really? I think like you see now, like Susie Orman is talking about Bitcoin. You see more and more celebrities. And now no, I'm kind are, of happy about that though. Honestly, who are they bringing I think... on the news? Who are they bringing on the news lately? They're bringing on, and I've even seen some BTC people like, oh my God, this guy literally discovered Bitcoin yesterday. Mr. Wonderful from Shark Tank is now a Bitcoin guy with laser eyes. Who's going to get all the interviews? The, the balance of influence is really quickly shifting. Uh... Um, 
And, and pretty soon Michael Saylor, like I would say Michael Saylor is already bigger than all of the high priests of, of Bitcoin, already way bigger, has a way bigger reach. That and he's not so even a guy funny. that was a household name before that. So wait until no. you get Merck Cuban or somebody who's already a household name. Those guys are, they're gone, man. They're relegated to the, to the, to the little cloisters of people that grumble and say that things have been corrupted now. Well, well, then where are we going in that world? Like, are we, if those cypherpunks lose their influence, do we have a situation where actually the new narrative shift can bring about a better Bitcoin? Or are they just no, totally clueless? That I don't there's think no so, way? because I think the narrative is so divorced from Bitcoin, the technology, that it won't matter. It's just a bunch of people throwing money at some, some <laughs> Story. you know, fund that's going to do an ETF. And it just becomes something that Kramer talks about on his crazy stock show. And, and nobody yeah. even knows what, they, like people don't know what the stocks are that they invest in or whatever. They don't care, right? And so it's just, it's that. It's another commodity you can throw money in. It fluctuates in price. Okay. People say shit about it. You know, nobody I knows. I could see that. that world. I could see that. I could see that, especially if it's taken out, if the influence is taken out of the hands of the cypherpunks and it's put into people who know even less, yeah. then, then it really could just be traded for no kind of, kind of no yeah. fundamental reason successfully. No. Yeah, and the, and, the, and the code never really needs to change because nobody's really- Right, because it doesn't need to do anything. You actually totally. don't need it to scale at all. Yeah, and, and, the, and in that scenario, it could just persist as that indefinitely. Um, or there could be some economic crisis where people are like, yeah. I need to get money and they go to pull out their Bitcoin all at the same time and none of them can get it and it all collapses. Or mm -hmm. they just get money from the third parties and the third parties say, we got you. And then mm -hmm. third parties say, Bitcoin collapsed, government, we need you to bail us out and make up for the fact that we couldn't get out the Bitcoin we needed and cash it out to make our customers whole and the FDIC will come in and bail them out or whatever, right? Like, mm. I think that's what it is. That's why I say financially, Bitcoin has a very bright future, BTC. The dream of BTC to me is completely dead. Like I don't see any scenario in which it's any kind of revolution. And I think there's a very slim chance that BSV or BCH bring about a revolution. Yeah. I doubt that's in money. I think it's more in micropayments and decentralized data is the greatest chance for a revolution. I think the money revolution ship has sailed because the blocks were crippled and we're, we're not going to see that. I hope that's oh, not true, but I think that's true. We have to stop talking about him now. He came back on. Oh my gosh. Oh, we didn't hear that last part. Derek, was it something I said? I, I, just, I just heard, all I heard was, I hope it's not true, but I, or something, but I think it is something like that. So it was that really about, bad. It was the rumors <laughs> about you. <laughs> well, I, I was, I was so, I my I went on my phone for this call and um, I thought it was plugged in, but the the USB cord was like mm. slightly out. So I'm sitting there That'll like it. thinking it's charging the whole time, but it's not. And then I was like trying to like message you guys on the Voxer desktop oh, because yeah. Zoom wouldn't open, but the Voxer desktop like wouldn't load either. It's like all like glitchy half the time. So, well, we were just essentially saying like. If the if the narrative has gotten out of the hands of the old cyberpunks punks and into the hand of the new clueless like Michael Saylor crowds, then we we could see us really could see a situation in which there's no scaling that's even required or necessary because nobody's using Bitcoin for any anything where it matters if there's a thousand dollar transaction fee. Oh yeah, no, I I 100% believe that. That's like that's that's basically part of my investment thesis, like why I've been chilling it so hard because it's like. What we're going to see now is there's, well, people will use it eventually. What they'll use it on is PayPal and other yeah. places. So like scaling has been solved on Bitcoin. It's just been solved in a, in a way that is completely non-revolutionary and yeah. completely contradicts the original goals of Bitcoin. But to say Bitcoin's not scalable is no longer accurate. Like Bitcoin's just going to scale with, uh, with banks and payment processors. 
and uh, third parties. Well, or, will know, people and, actually even use it in commerce though? I don't even see the, I don't even know if that could take off. Like if you're, if the people are buying it because they think it's some no, inflation you, you hedge. Have your, you have your Robinhood account, your PayPal account, where I can buy and sell BTC instantly with no fees on, on Robinhood. Uh, and I get the dollars instantly available to me. And then in Robinhood, you can also have a cash account that comes with a debit card. So I just put my cash, I put some of it into BTC and it sits there. And then when I, when I need some, I sell a little and it's instantly in my cash account and I use my debit card to to buy it. So it's just a place to park money. You don't actually own it in your wallet. You don't, you don't have any of the security benefits or any of the other stuff that Bitcoin was intended to do, but it's just a place to put money where you hope it will appreciate in value. And, I'm, and people may send it like it'll be i see it as being at that point it's going to be like interchangeable with cash and, and like 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 digital cash in the sense that you know if someone's asking me to pay them on venmo for dinner like i could just as easily send them bitcoin because it's not actually really sending them bitcoin it's just debiting their balance on their account with bitcoin held by i didn't even know why service. that would why would that take off though i mean if, you, if you're talking not. I have no idea whether it'll it's, take it's off or not. It's taking off right now because of that narrative. No, and no, because, no, no. I mean, I mean, I mean, Bitcoin well, paid in pay, like in PayPal commerce. That's not yeah, taking yeah, yeah. off. Well, well, people, people could use it just because that's where they have some of their savings, and so it could take off for any number. Really. I mean, it could, it could literally take off just for like the signal, just because people think it's cool to send someone Bitcoin. I mean, right, well, I so like no, right I, now the dollar people are scared shitless of the dollar. And so they don't want their savings in dollars, but they don't necessarily want it tied up in, in companies or other less liquid things. So a lot of people are just dumping money into real estate, stocks, gold, Bitcoin, all these things are getting money dumped into them because they're like anything but the dollar because I don't trust it right now. And if that proves true, the dollar is inflating and Bitcoin because, I mean, I think Bitcoin's price rise is, is honestly mostly inflation it's that's where all the money's going is into stocks and bitcoin and, and these that's why housing prices are inflating nobody's talking about it. all these things are inflating like tons of them the, and i don't mean inflating and in increase i mean increasing in price but um so i think if more and more people are putting money into there because it's like hey it goes up in value it goes up in value oh and by the way groceries are getting more expensive everything's getting more expensive every couple months because we're in an inflationary economy having a money that goes up in price every couple months even moderately versus one that stays the same in US dollars is better. So you're going to put some there. And then all of a sudden, Derek comes and, you know, changes my tire for me and says, you owe me 200 bucks and I want to send it to him. And I go to my PayPal or my Robinhood cash or Venmo account. And I've got some money sitting there in Bitcoin. And I just, I can, and I have some in sitting in USDC coin and I have some sitting in whatever, and I can send it to him from any of them. And they're all instant with no fee because none of them are mm-hmm. the actual thing. Then that's going to happen. You know what I mean? But it, it's like, nothing's happening on chain. And there's all the, the, all the attributes that are supposed to be revolutionary are gone, but it's just like a make-believe place where you park money. But, you know, people are still going to think it has all those attributes. That'll be the amazing thing is how many people still think it's, it's, it's all the things that it promised. I mean, not everybody will, but there'll be a lot of people who are holding their Bitcoin on PayPal or Robinhood who are like thinking that they're participating in some decentralized process. Yeah, they're cypherpunks. It's so funny. Like I, for a long time, until still- AOC gets elected and says we're doing a rebalancing, everyone with more than fifty thousand dollars in Bitcoin is being redistributed to everybody else, and you well, can exactly do it by talking that's to what two I think companies. Is the inevitable outcome for Bitcoin, like my long-term prediction for Bitcoin, is basically that there will be some earth-shattering event where a lot of people get like screwed by like some kind of taxation collection event, you know, on the exchanges, because so much Bitcoin will have been held on these, these centralized services, or like, 
it turns out that like PayPal is not keeping a hundred percent reserves, you know, or something like that. Like that's what I think the future is. Yeah. I think it's particularly funny um, because a lot of the attacks against big block Bitcoin are people saying, well, just use PayPal. If you're going to have such a centralized service. And it's so funny to, to me that like at the end of the day, what the BTC people have brought into existence is just use PayPal to exchange your Bitcoin. It's not even going to be Bitcoin. Well, and yeah. all these all these services are going to not be backed. Like we, I mean, Tether was like one of the first, and they're instantly no. not backed. Like already, they're full of shit, right? No, so like, I think that's why the price will stop going up so much because all the PayPal's and stuff of the world, they'll be just issuing fake Bitcoin credits above the actual supply. And so that will level out the price just like the Fed does so that it will stop being deflationary basically. And then it'll be a stable money and people be like, now it's used in currency and it's just a bunch of IOUs on top. Like it's just the same shit. It's just, you know, kicking the can down the road. Can you imagine a fractional reserve, uh, a catastrophe happening in Bitcoin that's like connected to Tether? So you have PayPal and these big companies that think that, their tether coins are actually exchangeable for Bitcoin because of some other centralized service. And then oops, the dominoes start falling and you can't get your Bitcoin off your PayPal account. That'd be yeah, so funny. Like to, to me, that's going to happen. It's a question of if it happens in a hundred years or if it happens in 10 months, you know? Well, and then the people who, who do are, are trying to like move their Bitcoin on chain are getting stuck in some giant backlog, you know, hope praying to God they're able to dump it or something like that. Yeah. Like, oh my gosh. Yeah, that, that's why I, I, I don't like holding it. Bitcoin, like as a speculative asset, I'd rather invest in it on Robinhood because I have had glimpses in 2017. I've felt the experience of if you feel like the market's about to tank and you want to take some some cash, you can actually use it to improve your quality of life or put it in a different investment. You can't. You're stuck. You're stuck indefinitely. And you have no idea if it's ever going to come to you. It's a horrible feeling if it's a significant amount of money. And like, I know that shit will happen again. Even if it's just temporary when there's a big dip in the market or a big run up in the market. Like I don't like that feeling of knowing that my shit's out of my control and something goes wrong. Maybe it gets lost. I'll never get it back. Right. Like it's that I, yeah, I just see like the price of Bitcoin I see as I'm very bullish on. And at least in the next several years, the prospects of Bitcoin for changing the world, I basically think are BTC, I think are completely over. And the prospects of something catastrophic, at least like partially or maybe completely is like on the table. In fact, I think it's inevitable if you give it a long enough time horizon. It's a weird position to be in to see systemic and structural flaws this early on, because I don't think there's anything that we could do to really prevent it. If if the story that you're saying is true and that's the world we're heading towards and there is going to be catastrophe. I honestly hope I'm wrong, by the way. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I don't know. I think it'd be quite funny if that happens. It'd be, it'd be good for a lot of laughs. <laughs> I mean, it would be, it would definitely be, you know, justice in a way. Yeah, but it's weird to be in a position of, it sort of happened with the block size limit. It's like people were saying forever, transaction fees are going to go way up. There's going to be anti-adoption. This is not the road that we want to go down. And then a few years later, it happened. Um, I feel like we're on the same path again. There's there's disaster lurking, and there's just no there's no bullhorn you can shout into in which that it, the narrative is going to shift in time. Yeah, as, as no, literally as- every day I see some like podcaster who has nothing to do with Bitcoin or or, or you know that I've followed over the years being like talking about how amazing Bitcoin is, you know, like who's never talked about Bitcoin before. You know, like even Jordan Peterson was the other day I saw on on Twitter saying something about Bitcoin. Then you had Tim Ferriss saying something about Bitcoin and 
their opinions about Bitcoin are all completely wrong. You know, like it's like it's all nonsense, but the narrative is very strong. And it and it's and it can't be overcome during the during the bull run. As long as I'm getting richer, right? Then why would I ever listen to any other narrative? I'm, yeah, I'm that's true. I'm hyped about it. I'm display and and there's especially right now, all these people are put out of work by force from these government edicts with, with COVID bullshit and you know, the economy is super screwed up with inflation and all this shit going on. You got more and more inflation coming and more than ever, people are trapped at home, looking on screens. They're in, they're in video game sort of mindset. Anything I can do, Robinhood apps, day trading, where I can play around and just get rich without working, maybe because I can't get a job or I don't want to, is so attractive. It's in the zeitgeist so strong. It's like an unstoppable force. There's this hunger of like, because I've seen literal people who became millionaires from holding Bitcoin. I can't resist it. You know what I mean? Like you can't resist that shit. It's it's just going to go until it gets really ugly. Yeah. And it's got, it's got a while to go. I think, I think, I think the BSVers who think that, you know, in a year, like Craig's going to sink the whole thing or are just naive, like, like crazy, just do not understand the world and do not understand what people want. And I I think the craziness is, is like just beginning and and the madness is, is we haven't even seen anything yet. Yeah. Yeah, I I think if we're going into the world in which commerce happens on Bitcoin, but it's not on Bitcoin, it's just through, third parties that are established third parties, this shit can last a long time. Yep. Gentlemen, maybe indefinitely. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I feel like there's an inevitable failure scenario, just like once the federal reserve was created, it's like, it will inevitably collapse at some point. It could probably go a couple hundred years. I don't know. Um, But it can't, it can't go indefinitely, but it can go a long time. Um, And that's kind of how I feel. We miss TK. TK, we miss you. Um, you know, I feel like this is one of those like rap songs, like, you know, I ain't mad at you, Tupac or something like we got to let people know there's no beef going on here. Actually, no, we shouldn't let people know. We should keep the mystery going. Yeah, Yeah, definitely keep keep the mystery going. It might be a beef with TK. Um, gentlemen, this was a lot of fun. Any, uh, any final words before we close it down? I was thinking that the last thing we should end with is, uh, that Craig Wright's legal team should talk to Derek McGill about how to win, um, cases. (laughs) Yeah, no, I'd be happy to advise them on on all sorts of stuff. I mean, uh, <laughs> legal stuff. I mean, I studied law in the parking lot of Harvard, and um, I took an online course in in this kind of stuff once. Derek has actually course. been to Rome, where many of the legal structures we use today in the Western world evolved. He knows this. Okay, you have a oh, citation hey. for that, Isaac. And in fourth grade, I was in um, I a, mock, a mock trial, Isaac, and I got a certificate from it. <laughs> and I still have that certificate. I'm, 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 I'm trying to one-up Craig's YMCA certificate, his junior YMCA certificate. You're, you're building a, a bigger wheelbarrow. It's Do you like, guys remember when that was shared online? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Seriously, like, yeah. seriously was shared online. His it's junior- like in Arrested Development where he's like, I'm a maritime lawyer because in, in elementary school, he played a judge in the trial of Captain Hook. Uh, so, you know. <laughs> I, I almost, like, I, thought, I thought for a while, like it's, the guy's got to be like doing parody because there's no possible way anyone would share that. But sure enough, it was a serious, it was a serious thing. It was serious business that Craig had his junior YMCA certificate. Like we can't, 
do you actually like think it was serious business? Though? If that's real, if that's really serious business, I would think that uh, the soon times would be reporting on that sooner or later. Probably. Well, I, um, I, I was also wondering too, because the, the, the certificate looked a little bit, um, a little bit shady. I was wondering if, if, <laughs> if, if it was even, if it was even real. That would be very much the spirit. That would be the spirit of questionably forged YMCA certificate. <laughs> and, and that is the man whose version of Bitcoin is technically superior to all the rest. Well, to be fair, it's not, I mean, it's not his version. It's, it's Roy's version. Craig is, really, <laughs> Craig is merely operating as a front man for, for Roy. You know, it might be a good use of time to figure out whose um, signature is on that YMCA certificate and contact them and see and if I, they I, remember I'll, signing I'll, it, you know? I'll get, uh, what's, it, what's Arthur Van Pelt to go on a research thing to go find <laughs> yeah. Craig's middle school gym. Yeah, that'll <laughs> occupy him for about a month. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like, that's, like, like as is, is, is funny as sometimes the, the, the Craig things are, like, I, it's like, I, that guy's so sad. Sometimes it's like, <laughs> come on, dude, like, like and, i mean i, I it, it's just the one like who puts that kind of time into into that kind of shit trouble troubling troubling trends in our times there's t t t i got some got some uh, alliteration in all right guys thanks for chatting talk to you next time yeah